All right, good morning. Thank you, guys. Uh, if you're new to Fairway, you may not know, these are our three worship leaders. And each week, they take turns leading a band and a group of singers. And it's always very good. They're very talented. But when the three of them take the stage at the same time, it's just special. So, thank you, guys. Welcome. We're in Romans chapter 5. We'll continue. We're going to look at a new set of verses, but we're only going to cover one. So the verses should be on the screen behind me as we read Romans chapter 5. We'll begin with verse 14. We'll read through verse 17. Verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Okay, we'll stop reading there. But we're really only going to cover the last phrase of verse 14, because that's what we left undone last week. But before we get to the passage, I want to ask you, what would you say are the most important events in human history, the most important events in human history. Well, maybe some of you would go way, way back and cite something like the discovery of fire, which certainly changed the course for mankind. If you're like me, you would state that the events of February 25th, 1836 was one of the most important events in all of history. A few years before that, in 1831, the first practical revolving cylinder handgun was invented by Samuel Colt, and that was patented on February the 25th, 1836, the year of the Texas Revolution. That gun was called the Texas Colt and became synonymous with Texas. The gun had a nine-inch barrel and was adopted famously by the Texas Rangers. It changed life on the prairie. So, you need to know your Texas history. But perhaps you were born or raised in a lesser state, and so you consider other dates to be more significant. What events would you cite? 
Well, I mean, maybe if you're a history major, again, you may go way back and say things like the invention of the printing press or the crossing of the Rubicon or when the Normans invaded England in 1066. Maybe the invention of the atomic bomb. All of those things had dramatic repercussions and were very important dates in history. Not as important as the date in 1836, but they were important. So listing these great moments in history can go on almost indefinitely. And the items can all be quite interesting, especially to specific groups or races or nationalities. But as important as all of these events have been, they pale in comparison to the two events that Paul discusses here in Romans chapter 5. Namely, the fall of the race in Adam and the redemption of the race by Jesus Christ. These were pivotal points in history. And they overwhelm all of these other events because of two things. First, because of the significance of what Adam and Jesus did. Even though what they did and the results were quite different. And secondly, not just the significance of what they did, but the people affected. Paul summarizes the importance of these events in verse 18, which we stopped right before we read this morning. But verse 18 says, therefore, so because of all the verses we just read, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Two most important events in human history. The New International Version, I think, summarizes this greatly. They break their passages into paragraphs, and the paragraph heading above verse 12 just says, death through Adam, life through Christ. Pretty simple. But whenever we link these events, like you, did, you just heard in verse 18, we usually stress the contrast between them. What was different? Adam brought death. Jesus brought life. But even though this contrast is important, and the next set of verses, verses 15 through 17, will develop that. If you may have caught as we were reading that, that that's what it really does, is lists out the differences between these two men. Even though it does that, the ways that Adam and Christ are similar are also important, maybe even more so. It's because our understanding of salvation depends upon their similarity. And Paul points to this when he says in verse 14 that the phrase we're going to study this morning, Adam, who is a type of the one to come. So we're going to look at what that means. I mean, we can understand how Adam might be considered a type of other human beings. That makes sense. 
He chose to sin against God. And we, of course, sin too. So Adam is very much like us in that way. But how can he be a pattern for Jesus Christ? How can sinful Adam, a mere man, represent the sinless Son of God? Well, we have to begin with this critical term in the passage, and it's the English word type. It's translated several ways in different translations of the Bible. The King James Version uses the word figure. The Revised Standard Version and the English Standard Version, which we just read from, uses the word type. And the New International Version uses the word pattern. He was a pattern of the one to come. The New English Bible doesn't even just use one word, but it paraphrases and it says, Adam foreshadows the man who was to come. J.B. Phillips' translation says, Adam, the first man, corresponds in some degree to the man who was to come. Which they're really just defining the word instead of using the word. So the Greek word is tupos. It's spelled T-Y-P-O-S, which will come into play when it's translated into English later. But the Greek word is pronounced tupos. And it comes from the Greek word tupto, which means to strike, to strike. And that's why our word type and typing comes from this root. A type is a piece of metal that goes into a printing press. And so when the paper is put on that and struck, the image of the letter or the symbol of the number or whatever is on there is transferred to the paper. And of course, typing if you remember typewriters, accomplishes the same thing, but the type moves against the paper in a little machine. Surely y'all remember typewriters. Right? Okay. In the Greek, this word tupos referred to the mark left by an object. The mark left by an object that for some reason or another hit something else. A wound, for example. And we see this in John chapter 20 when Thomas said this, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. The word translated in our English Bibles as mark is actually the word tupos. And it refers to the wounds left by the nails of Jesus' crucifixion, the mark. Along the way, the word tupos took on a wider set of meanings. It came to mean a figure or a form of something. For example, the figure of a god, like an idol. It appears that way in Acts 7.43 where it's translated in its plural form as images. It says, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Some translations use different words. The King James Version uses the word figures instead of images, and the NIV uses the word idols. But again, it is the figure or the form of something. But more commonly, the word is translated as example. 
So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we read this, first in verse 6. Now these things took place as examples, as types for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. We see it in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 says, brothers, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Eventually, the Greek word tupos came to mean this, a person or an object or an event that typified or prefigured something greater than itself. A person or an object or an event that typified or prefigured something greater than itself. This is the way it's used in our text here, Romans 5, where we are taught that Adam was a type of, or he prefigured Christ. But Adam is not the only type of Jesus in the Bible. Much of the Old Testament prefigures Christ. In fact, you might even think all of it does. I'm reminded of the story of Jesus' encounter with the man on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. Luke chapter 24 says that he opened the scripture to them and he began with Moses and all the prophets and it says he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How would you have liked to have had that lesson? Everything in the Old Testament scriptures that refers to me, Jesus, I'm going to teach you. So pay attention. I just know that from that point on, as those men read the Bible, everything in the Old Testament would seem to be a type of Christ. I can imagine they would have turned to Genesis and it would have been an entirely new book. They would have understood that the seed of the woman was Christ. They would have seen him in the promises to Abraham and maybe even recognized him in the moving story of Joseph. When they turned to Exodus, they would have seen Christ in the Passover lamb. In Numbers, he would have been the rock in the wilderness from which the people received the water of life freely. And even the manna, manna would have typified Jesus. Listen to John chapter 6, verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world is Jesus Christ. Maybe they could have even seen Jesus in the cloud that led the Israelites during their pilgrimage and overshadowed them for their protection. Deuteronomy pictures Christ as the righteous one. And then defines that righteousness in the rest of the book. In Joshua, he is the commander of the army of the Lord. 
and so on. You can, you can just imagine how these men, after having been instructed by Jesus, saw the Old Testament differently as they saw these types, these representatives that prefigured Christ. In Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, he is the son of righteousness. But I think we have to come back to the question, what about Adam? Okay, so we've studied types, and that's interesting and all, but it still doesn't answer our question about Adam. How can he be said to represent Jesus Christ in any way? Well, we may not have answered the question, but I think we're on the right track now. And we're on the right track in the sense that we have seen this, that types represent their great fulfillments in certain particulars, though not in all respects. So a type represents their fulfillments, the thing they are a type of, in certain ways, but not in every way. This means that we are not looking for a perfect correspondence between Adam and Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, as I said next week, we'll look at some very important differences. But what we are looking for today are the important similarities. So again, how can Adam be said rightly to represent Christ? What are their similarities? Well, I think there are some important parallels we can see. So let's go through those. First, both Adam and Jesus Christ were appointed by God to be representatives of other men. Now, we've studied in here how God appointed Adam to stand for humanity as a federal head or representative. So that if Adam stood firm in righteousness, we would stand with him. And if he fell, we too would fall. But Jesus was also appointed a representative. That's taught to us in Hebrews chapter 10. You can really just read the entire chapter of Hebrews. He quotes from Psalm 40 in there, and he just declares Jesus to be that representative for all of us. Second thing they have in common. Both Adam and Jesus became heads of particular bodies of people. You can call it a race, or you can call it descendants. Thus, each of them is the head of either the old humanity or the new humanity. They are the source of those two. The old humanity is the race that stands apart from Jesus Christ, lost in its sin, headed for destruction. It's what we see around us in the world. Adam is the head of that. The, the new humanity are those who are saved by Jesus Christ. In Romans 5, in verse 19, Paul says, of the, he speaks of the many who were made sinners in contrast to the many who would be made righteous. In verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, in Adam all die, and in Christ all will be made alive. You can see that it is in, it is in joining with these that we experience the consequences of their actions. 
Verse 45 says in 1 Corinthians 15, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Notice the words, first Adam and last Adam. So in 1 Corinthians there, Paul did not say the first Adam and the second Adam, although we sometimes refer to Christ that way. But he makes a point to refer to them as first and last because he's thinking of them in this representative way. It's a way of saying there are only two humanities. Not three or four or more. Only two representative heads of these humanities. There will never be a third. There is no neutrality. This morning, in this room, you only have two options. You've rejected Jesus Christ. And so Adam is still your head and you live in sin and death. Or if you've accepted Jesus Christ, he is now the head and you live in life, eternal life and righteousness. All right, number three, similarity or parallel number three. Both Adam and Jesus had covenants made with them by God. A covenant is an agreement made by two parties, and it's usually confirmed by some symbolic act or an oath of some kind. And we have many examples of these in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. You can study covenants with Noah and Abraham David, there are many others. The word covenant is not used in the Bible specifically about Adam. But there can be little doubt that God established a covenant with him. Systematic theology traditionally divides God's plan of redemption into two main covenants. The first is the covenant of works. Some call it the covenant of creation. Others call it the Adamic covenant, the covenant with Adam. And the second covenant is the covenant of grace. When God created Adam, he entered into a covenant with Adam, whereby Adam was required to obey God in order to secure God's blessing. We see this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's a very short statement. But as we study Romans 5, especially, and there are other places we can look as well, it can surely be expanded by saying something like this. This is not scripture, this is just my paraphrase. If you obey me by refusing to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which I've placed in the garden, then you'll be established in righteousness forever. Moreover, all who descend from you will also be established in righteousness and enjoy the fruit of righteousness, which is eternal life. But... If you disobey me and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And not only will you die, death will also come to your descendants. 
You will be their ruin and they will be condemned for your act. And we studied that in detail a couple of weeks ago. But I want to ask you a question. I was reading a book this week by Dr. R.C. Sproul, and it got me to thinking, have you ever wondered why that the covenant that God made with Adam was based on works, but the new covenant was based on grace and faith? Why not just make a second covenant based on works also? Why the change? I mean, have you ever considered that? They're, the two covenants are different. Well, look, the Bible teaches that justification is by faith alone. Yet, according to Sproul, and I had to think about this a long time before I even decided whether I wanted to say it in here or not. I don't want to get fired. Um, the Bible teaches that justification is by faith alone, yet ultimately... There is only one way anybody is ever saved in the presence of God, and that is through works. There's only one way anybody is ever saved in the presence of God, and that is through works. He goes on to say, the question is not whether you're going to be saved through works, but rather the question is whose works. We are saved through the works of the only one who fulfilled the terms of the covenant of works, the first covenant. That's why it's not just the death of Christ that redeems us, but it is also the life of Christ. So what do we do? Well, we trust in that one, and his righteousness is imputed to us, as we've already mentioned the righteousness of a perfectly obedient life is credited to us. A perfectly obedient life fulfills the requirement of the covenant with Adam. Jesus accomplishes that through us, for us. And the way we have access to it is through faith and through grace. So this, again, brings us to this second covenant God made with Jesus Christ. At the Last Supper, in Luke chapter 22, when Jesus holds out the cup, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. The covenant might have gone as follows if it had been written down. If you, Jesus, will become the federal head or representative of a new humanity, taking upon yourself the task of fulfilling my divine law and then dying to make satisfaction for the sins of the people I will give to you, then that people shall be freed from sin's bondage, be given eternal life, and be raised to life to reign with you in heaven throughout eternity. I mean, this is a great covenant. That's why the author of Hebrews contrasts it with the covenant God made with Israel, which is similar to the one he made with Adam. In chapter 8, verse 6, he says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. 
So the third way that these two historical figures are similar is that they both were involved in a covenant with God. Number four, both Adam and Jesus Christ passed on to others the effects of their disobedience or obedience. The effect of Adam's disobedience, we've talked about sin, condemnation, and death. The effect of Jesus' obedience was righteousness, justification, and eternal life. Just reading some commentaries this week, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Adam's sin and its consequences was passed on to us all without exception. Christ's obedience and righteousness is passed on to all who believe in him. Robert Haldane also said, the two Adams are the heads of the two covenants. The one, the representative of all who are under the covenant of works, communicating his image unto them. The other, the representative of all who are under the covenant of grace and communicating his image to them. By the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, and by the obedience of the other, many shall be made righteous. Okay, so again, next week we'll start looking at some of the differences between these two men. Before we need, before we do that, I think we need to take a look at what these similarities and then next week what the differences teach us about Adam and the events that surround him in Genesis. What do we learn about him? Well, I think the first thing we learn about Adam is that he was an actual his, historical character, every bit as real as we are. I mean, there's been a tendency in recent times, um, even going back into the 19th century, to dismiss Adam as well as many other parts of the book of Genesis as mythology. Mythology. A myth is a story meant to tell a religious truth. And that's different from a fable, which is an imaginary story with a moral, like Aesop's fables. It's even different from a legend, which is a heroic saga, usually involving larger-than-life characters. You think of King Arthur in the Round Table, Knights of the Round Table. But on the other hand, a myth is a religious story. It doesn't have to do with gods and goddesses or heroes and heroines, but it often does. But a myth deals with timeless or religious truths, and here's the important point. It is not meant to be taken literally. That is why so many liberal scholars like to refer to the story of Adam as mythology. Now, fortunately for us, in Christendom, when it comes to comparing the truth of Scripture to fables and legends and myths and fantasy, we have an expert. The expert was the English literary scholar and Christian apologist C.S. Lewis. He made his reputation writing about mythology. 
there was a time when he was dealing with some claims that the New Testament is mythology. But I think his argument can apply to Genesis as well. Here's what he said. A man who has spent his youth and manhood in the minute study of New Testament texts and of other people's studies of them, whose literary experiences of those texts lacks any standard of comparison, such as can only grow from a wide and deep and genial experience of literature in general, is, I should think, very likely to miss the obvious things about them. So if you don't know anything about other forms of literature, you're going to miss the comparisons between the two. Makes sense. If he tells me that something in a gospel is a legend or a romance, I want to know how many legends or romances have you read? How well is your palate trained in detecting them by their flavor? Not how many years you've spent on that gospel. Lewis then introduced the Gospel of John as an example of biblical material that some considered to be mythology. And he concluded, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they all are like. I know that not one of them is like this. Talking about the Gospel of John. I think you can say the same about Genesis. If the story of Adam is a myth, then we're going to have to find a new definition for the word. For there was a historical Adam, and his story is to be taken literally. I mean, the real proof of the historic nature of Adam is the parallel that Paul draws between the person of Adam and the person of Christ. And that's what we've been studying. Jesus was a specific character in history. We know that. We know that he came to earth at a specific time in the days of Herod the king. When Caesar Augustus was the ruler of the Roman Empire and Quirinius was the governor of Syria. We know that he accomplished a literal redemption for us by his death at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Jesus came into our history to undo the effects of Adam's literal transgression. Therefore, Adam himself and his deeds must have been historical. Here's why. You do not need an historical atonement to undo a mythological fall or a mythological transgression. All you need is another myth. But if Christ needed to be real to save us, then Adam was real too. It is because Adam was real that Christ also had to be real to make an atonement. Which brings us to the second thing that the comparisons today teach us, and that is that the fall of the human race was also historical. It was a real event. And that's important because it involves guilt before God, true guilt, not merely imagined guilt or guilty feelings, but real, punishable guilt. I mean, just think about it this way. 
perhaps the major reason why these liberal scholars want to reduce Genesis and the story of Adam to mythology is that they don't want to face the reality of the fall of the race of human beings and the guilt that flows from it. If there was no fall, then all this business about Adam and Eve and the serpent and the garden has been only there only to describe our, you know, we've kind of talked about this before, our unfortunate but inevitable human condition. It's meant to say that we live in an imperfect world and must therefore continue to struggle against imperfection. In fact, rather than involving guilt, this kind of a framework gives us a cause for pride or even an imagined heroic stature because we're not to be blamed for anything. We've simply inherited imperfection and are, if anything, to be praised for how well we're struggling against it. In fact, we can be said to be doing better and better all the time. But it's not that way. We are not doing better and better, nor are we merely struggling with imperfections. We were once right with God in Adam, but we rebelled. Now, we're actually falling away from God as rapidly as our depraved powers and the downward flowing course of our culture will take us. And Romans 1 describes that decline. You can read it. If we are to be saved, it must be by another historical act. The Lord Jesus Christ, who entered history precisely for that reason, must perform it. I'm going to ask our praise team to return to the stage. I'm going to close with some paragraphs I read from Donald Barnhouse. He says, apart from the story of this fall, it is remarkable how little is written in the Bible concerning Adam. He was created by God. He was commanded to take dominion over creation. He fell. For him, the blood, uh, first blood sacrifice was made. He had several children, the first of whom was a murderer, the second a type of those who believe and follow Christ, and the third the progenitor of the race and fulfillment of the promises of God. There's also recorded Adam's age at death, an extremely meager biography. But two stupendous facts make Adam one of the most famous names in history. He was the first man, and he was the first sinner. He dissipated his children's heritage, and we have all been in spiritual poverty ever since. But as we peer at him through the shadows of time, we do not judge him too harshly, for we know that he did exactly what, what we would have done in his place. And indeed, we can look rather kindly upon Adam, because through him we learn the principle of the one standing for the many. At the cross of Jesus Christ, we see that other one also standing for the many. As Adam stood for many and brought death upon us all, so our Lord Jesus stood for many and brings life 
to all who believe. Without a question, every one of us is in Adam. Can you look to Calvary and know that you are in Christ? Having been defiled by the stream that flows from Adam, you can find cleansing only by plunging into the stream that flows from the Lord Jesus Christ dying for us as head of the new race. That's the decision before us. I already know you're in Adam. Won't you make the decision to be in Christ? And the way you do that is by giving your life to him and trusting in him as your Lord and Savior and following him for the rest of your life. If you'd be interested in doing that, won't you come down and talk to me on this front row as the musicians sing? Let's pray together.